0: If you don't ask, they can't say yes. They can't bring you coffee or breakfast in bed. They can't read your thoughts, so don't make them guess. If you don't ask, they can't say yes. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am Maxwell Ivey, known around the world as The Blind Blogger. And this is another episode of What's Your Excuse? Where I do my best to help you overcome the excuses that are holding you back by bringing you conversations with people who have overcome, overcome adversity, thrived in spite of difficult life circumstances, struck out on their own and started a unique business, or have real-world-tested Advice to share with you that will help you accomplish your own goals. I will also have on people who I personally respect and, and am inspired by. So I do hope you will check out the podcast at theblindblogger.net. You can also find it on the What's Your Excuse podcast network at wyexcuse.com slash shows. And you can ask Alexa or Google to play What's Your Excuse. I do hope you'll also check out our sponsor, Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. As they like to say, when they started, they couldn't afford the E. Uh, They provide not only financial support to my show and to the network uh, with hosting, but also they provide a lot of technical support that allows me to help other podcasters with a disability to launch their shows or grow their audiences. So I do hope you will check out Blueberry.org, excuse me, .com, and there will be a, an affiliate link to them in the show notes where you can uh, reach out to them should you be considering starting a podcast and want to get off to a good start. All right. So today, I am bringing you another awesome guest. I'm speaking with Heather Hutchison, and she is a Amazon best-selling author of the book, uh... Holding on by letting go, a memoir. She is also about to release her fourth album called If I Could. She was born blind and has had to deal with mental illness from an early age. She loves to use her voice and her writing to encourage, educate, and inspire other people who are dealing with mental illness uh so i do hope y'all will check out her website at heather-hutchison.com and again that'll be in the show notes so heather thank you for coming on what's your excuse
1: thank you so much for having me i'm excited to be here
0: well i'm excited to have you and uh you know it's interesting that that i'm starting to find some great podcast guests and fellow hosts over on podmatch.com which is run by my friend Alex Sanfilippo who actually encouraged me to start the podcast network. So I'm, uh, I don't go a lot of places online or in person where there's more than maybe two or three people who have a disability. It just doesn't seem to happen. But thankfully his website is not that way. And hopefully that was just a temporary glitch where Heather is, Heather didn't hear me. So uh Heather, I would like to hear about this uh, latest album of yours, because we talked about the title before we started recording. And I asked you if the title referred to, if you could, as things from your past or things from the future. And you said it was a little bit of both. So why don't we talk about the inspiration for the latest album and what you think maybe some people watching and listening could take from that?
1: For sure. So the latest album actually came about after I wrote my book, I hadn't really planned on writing another album. And my book came out. And of course, I started writing songs, because I mean, looking back on it, it's, it's just so obvious. It's what I've always done is, you know, when things got hard, when things were challenging, I would sit down at the piano, and I would write and things would make more sense. And I could, I could put into words some of those complicated emotions that I was feeling at the time and really get them out. And and once that happened, you know, move past them. So the book came out and I started writing songs kind of based around the book, which focuses on my life as a blind person in Canada and Latin America and my struggles with mental health since a young age, which ultimately culminated in me being hospitalized for psychiatric care during COVID-19. So then I started writing songs about probably more specifically that hospitalization experience and my first steps into recovery afterwards.
0: Well, I have often heard it said, and I've said it in my own blog, that when uh, when when things don't, aren't going well for writers, they write, and when aren't going right for singers and songwriters, they create new albums, so yep. as you said, it really shouldn't be a surprise it's a, that that's where you went to, and it's so good that you had uh, music to go to in order to deal with some of these emotions that you maybe couldn't talk about or couldn't talk about with just anybody.
1: Yeah, I feel really fortunate to have had music to to get me through so many of life's challenges.
0: Okay, and how early did you uh, find a love for music, and uh, what is your uh, experience or training like as far as music?
1: I don't think there's really ever a time that music hasn't been a part of my life. I can remember being a little kid, barely being able to walk and carrying this giant Fisher Price tape recorder around with me everywhere, um, (laughs) and recording like songs and stories and things that I would make up onto this tape recorder. And I remember being six years old and my brother offered to loan me a hundred dollars to record an album, which if anybody's ever recorded an album, they know it's a lot more than a hundred
0: dollars. <laughs> so,
1: um, and no, he, he wasn't being supportive. He charged, he was going to charge me like 30% interest or something like that. Um, so obviously yeah, I didn't record an album when I was six, my first um, came out when I was 16. Um, so I learned a lot just through being in the studio and getting to work with some really fabulous session players and then I actually went to uh, school for music in Vancouver and I have a diploma in jazz and contemporary voice
0: okay and how long have you been have have you been writing music and what is that process like for a blind person to create music
1: I've been writing music since well forever but I think I got seriously into it probably my early teen years I think the first song that's ever actually like been out in public. I wrote when I was 13. And for a blind person, honestly, I don't really find the process. I mean, I've never been sighted, but I don't think that it's that different a process than from what I know from my sighted peers. Um, I just, I really like the notes app on my phone so I can either jot down, you know, lyric ideas or even sit down at the piano and just open the, the voice recorder and you know, get down little melodies and stuff because I always think and I think everybody does this. I'm like, oh, I'll totally remember this later. No, you never do. <laughs> so you gotta <laughs> you gotta write it down or or record it or something. And it's nice, you know, to have a phone or whatever to always have that in your back pocket. So I guess the one difference would be like a sighted person might have a notepad or or something like that to jot down stuff. But I need to have my phone or, or computer or something I can type on.
0: Okay so you write down ideas for lyrics and then you will record like the melodies either vocally or with a piano or some other instrument when they occur to you but as far as converting those ideas into a piece of arranged music is that more difficult or is it just one of those things you you hire somebody to do that
1: No I've usually done it so basically what happens is well, this this record was a little bit different, actually. Usually what happens is I'll arrange the songs acoustically. I'll take them on the road, you know, test them in front of an audience. And then when I'm getting ready to actually record studio versions of them, I'll sit down and, and sort of make the band arrangement ahead of time. And then I'm always open when the studio, the session players come in to, you know, if they have any feedback or like, oh, it sounds really cool to do this here. then. Then I love to hear that sort of thing. So I don't really hire anybody to do it. It sort of happens organically. This time it was actually kind of the reverse because everything's nobody's been performing because of COVID. So I actually wrote the songs like while I was in the studio and we arranged them for the studio. So now I'm kind of trying to do a bit of reverse engineering where I'm actually deconstructing the songs a little bit and and making them more acoustic so that, you know, when things open up, hopefully soon. And I'm playing them acoustically live. They they will make sense. So it's a bit of a different process for sure this time around.
0: Yeah. See, so I when I think about somebody writing a song, I think that when they uh, when they start working with the musicians, that they already have a completed work with the music and the lyrics, and there's very little changes made. But in your process, it's really a a a Strong outline, or maybe maybe a template or a bullet list kind of of approach, and it takes its final form after performing it a few times, whether that be in in public or in a studio.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a good way to put it for sure.
0: Okay, all right. So uh, the reason I was asking about is it more difficult, or or how is it different? Is because I have tried to learn to play an instrument many times. I have tried to learn braille music many times, and that has never worked for me. And most people aren't even aware that there is a separate braille alphabet just for music for those people who want to play from sheet music.
1: Oh, yes. I don't like braille music. I can barely read it because the way I figure (laughs) it, like my hands are going to be busy anyways because I'm usually playing while I'm singing. So I have to memorize it either way. I may as well just listen to it and memorize it that way.
0: Well, that is is a good way to look at it. And, you know, we're, I think you're, hopefully you're giving people some ideas of, you know, how maybe to be less, less rigid in the creative process so they can actually allow some of these things to come out of them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And every process, like every time I write a song, everyone always asks, like, do you have a specific process you adhere to every time? I think every time for a lot of people is just going to be a little bit different. So you know, you, you kind of figure out what works for you over time, but you're open to and flexible to having it work in different ways as well.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and really they're more often than not, the, the songs will actually change for you from the time you perform them the first time until you actually record them.
1: I think a little bit. Yeah. I they- they tend to you just kind of iron out some of the bumps, I guess, while you're while you're performing them live and things like that. Or you get other ideas that come to you like in the middle, you try something live and you're like, hey, that was really cool. I'm gonna record it like that when I do go to record it. So it yeah, it's a bit of a fluid process, I think.
0: Right. And have you worked with a lot of different musicians or does your process require you to to have maybe a, a, a little higher level of trust in the people you're going to let help you create?
1: It really varies from project to project. Uh, the first one I did, we started recording it when I was 15, so I didn't really have any of my own contacts. I met my producer at a talent competition. He came up to me backstage. He had been on the um panel of judges and said hey I'm a producer I liked the song you played we should talk about working together so um, I didn't actually really think it was gonna happen it was just like oh cool one of those things people say but then three weeks later we were in the recording studio for the first time so during that process I really had to lean on him to hire all the musicians and everything because I didn't have those contacts I was still in high school Um, the next time around I knew a few more people. And yeah, I, I think it's been that way ever since that I've I've really gotten, I've been fortunate to be able to pick the people that I work with and, and have had the chance to work with some really great musicians, but honestly, more importantly, some really amazing people and really great people to work with.
0: Right. So how long had you been performing at uh, events or talent shows or whatever before the uh, producer came up to you and. It was to, it was actually my
1: first um, performance that I'd ever done. I'd done like a couple of little performances for like because I started taking voice lessons the year before. So she would have like little recitals and things like that. And my voice teacher actually said, oh, you have to try out for this competition. I really didn't want to do it because I was super nervous. And I've always like had fairly bad stage fright and been kind of shy and awkward. So I really didn't want to do it. But I'm very glad that I did because it really led me down this pretty incredible path of, of things that I've gotten to do because of it
0: okay so those people who you know a few seconds ago were going to hate you because you only did one performance and got, <laughs> and, got and got signed they're now going to be okay because you because, because you have stage fright so it's a break even y'all don't, <laughs> don't send Heather any emails now I mean um, I mean I, I did like the so piano awesome
1: that- recitals and things before that but it was like the first it was the first time I ever sang and played in public, and one of my own songs as well so
0: and where was that at?
1: It was in Edmonton, Alberta. it was a a regional competition at a like a big summer fair that was held there every year
0: okay, righty, so uh you know i wasn 't anticipating that coming up so uh, <laughs> how how long had you dealt with the stage fright, and what what but was it just this one person telling you you needed to do it that got you past it, or were there other things you had been doing to to help deal with the stage fright?
1: I think it was pretty much that like i wouldn 't say i 've ever gotten past it or conquered it I think I've i 've just learned that. to to move through it and and really live with it because I think I don't know you I think a little bit of stage fright's a good thing because you know I always tell myself the second that I'm not nervous at all I'm gonna quit because that means I don't care anymore
0: yep um there's a there's a line from an old John Wayne movie where he played a pilot and one of the young guys asking me said do you, do you still get nervous? And he told the young guy, he said, if you ever pull that throttle back and you aren't nervous, it's time to go to the doctor and turn in your wings.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think performing is the same thing, but uh, I am envious well, of people who don't get nervous. <laughs> that would be nice. Uh,
0: well, I've, when I've done public speaking, I've had people tell me that um, that they are disappointed that I don't appear to get nervous. And I, they been disappointed. Tell them <laughs> Yes, they're disappointed. <laughs> That's they not would really like nice. to see a little. No, i <laughs> They want to see it's, you sweat. All, it's all in love. would <laughs> like to. I, I have a good friend from church. Her name is Cassie. And and she's like, Max, would you just make me a promise? Do me a favor. I'm like, okay, what do you want, Cassie? Because I'd do anything for you. So the next time you think you're going to get nervous, would you please call me? Because I want to see what that looks like.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, some people so, are just really so, good at hiding it though, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this is one of those areas where I wonder if when you're on stage, does your does your blindness um, allow- make it any easier or harder as far as the stage fright is concerned?
1: I don't know, because they always tell you to like not look at people like when they're giving advice for how to get over stage fright. So, I mean, maybe that's a good thing for blind people. But then I'm also kind of like, well, I don't see the audience's like faces at all. So what if they're really hating it? And then you'd look out and you would see that (laughs) if you were a sighted person, like everyone's yawning and falling asleep, but (laughs) you don't really get that feedback. So I don't know. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'm not really sure.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I don't know either. At my my last speaking engagement, I got a standing ovation, but I didn't know I was getting a standing ovation until the MC walked over and told me because all... (laughs) All I was hearing was the noise of people clapping. I thought they're they're happy. I did a good job, but yeah, um, that's true.
1: Actually, I've been at shows where I haven't even known until I've gotten off stage, and they're like, "Oh, you got a standing ovation." I'm like, "Oh, cool, well, okay,
0: next time, yeah." <laughs> next time, tell me in the moment so I can bow or yeah, a exactly. curtain call or something. I mean, <laughs> yeah, help a girl out, you know. Totally. Yeah, as. The, so I'm, I'm and um, I've I've also noticed that one of the things I I don't really enjoy speaking to groups over Zoom for the same reason because I don't get any auditory feedback.
1: Mm, that's true. Yeah, if everybody's on mute.
0: Well, that plus, in order to do this, where I'm not distracted, I have to turn off my screen reader so yeah. that I don't hear all those notifications coming up telling me so and so gave me a high five. Yeah, uh, so exactly. I can't see that. I can't hear those notifications. So it's like I'm talking to a, a, an empty room pretty much. And it's really unnerving.
1: I thought I was the only blind person that like didn't really care for Zoom meetings. But yeah, it, I'm glad to hear somebody else feels the same way. Or, or you turn off your screen reader, but then you don't get like the chat notifications. But there's info in the chat that you need that you just missed. So uh, Zoom meetings.
0: Yes. Yeah. And the other, the other thing that I don't care for with zoom is you just, you don't have the immediate interaction with the audience before and after your event.
1: No, that's true. So you don't really get to warm up and feel more comfortable and like, Oh, cool. All these people are pretty cool. They're just here to have a good time. And yeah, you don't really get that. So you don't know, you can't read the audience at all beforehand.
0: Yeah, there's not even a button on Zoom for somebody to send me a hug. So I mean
1: <laughs> No, I guess not.
0: <laughs> you know, there's they can they can smile, clap, you know, send a heart. There's a very limited v- a variety of things they can tell me on Zoom other than talking to me directly. So
1: True. Uh,
0: I think it's I think it's one of those things. I think a lot of people who are visually impaired are unhappy with Zoom for the lack of immediate immediate feedback versus a live presentation.
1: That's that's good to know, because I was feeling kind of like, oh, lots of line people probably really love this because, you know, you don't have to worry about transportation to get to meetings and things like that. And I'm like, oh, I'm just not really feeling it.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, then let me ask you about something I get all the time when I travel, which is that people that I, I seem to make a bigger impact on people when I give a talk in person versus giving a talk over zoom because they realize what it took for me to get from Houston, Texas to Orlando or New York city or Mm -hmm. Philadelphia.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's true too.
0: Yes. And when your job is to make an impact as a musician or a singer or a speaker, you know, you want all those points you can get because it may determine whether or not they hire you next time or whether or not they decide to purchase your album or something. So, totally.
1: You use what you got.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As I tell people all the time, I don't mind. I don't mind the sighted folk underestimating me or uh, thinking there are still so many things that visually impaired people can't do. Oh, it does is make it easier for me to impress them.
1: <laughs> that's a good way to look at it. Sometimes it can be really frustrating. Like seriously, you don't think I can do that basic thing, but that's true. They are really easy to impress. <laughs>
0: I'm going to get mail. It might be the first time Max ever gets mail. I mean, negatively, that is. Um, But see, that's one of the downsides to your brand being no excuses. And you're doing your podcast recorded live, which means that we only edit if something bad happens, like, you know, the power going out or zoom failing. So all that stuff will make it in there. And if you've been following my work at all, you know that I will probably bra- draw attention to it at some point during the show notes because that's just the way I seem to do things. But um, but I wanted to talk about some of these things because there are a lot of people who still think... I still have people ask me... First question they want to ask me is, how does a blind guy have a blog, but what's a podcast? So I'm sure there are people... <laughs> I'm sure there are people who wonder about you going into a recording studio or possibly even mixing or editing your own audio.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's so true. People... I don't, or even like on Facebook or Twitter, people, you know, if you say something about being blind, people are like, oh, you must be faking it because how can a blind person use Facebook? <laughs> I mean, it is 2022. We do have software to get around these things.
0: Yeah, but that's only because so many sighted people have trouble with Facebook too.
1: <laughs> that's true. That's true.
0: I've been thinking on that one for a while. Um. Uh... So when you do go into record about how long do y'all spend at a time and what is, uh, what is generally, um, you know, say maybe a median number of of pieces of music or songs that you can consider finished during a normal recording session.
1: That's tough because there's so many factors like instrumentation are you doing are you recording in a whole band are you doing like piano and vocal are you doing a bunch of harmonies things like that so it's really hard to say um I think things have changed a lot in the past few years like even since I released my last record it was still very much you go into the studio and you're like constantly watching the clock because they always say in the studio time is money so you're like trying to get a take and you, if if you're struggling with it or whatever, and you just get more stressed out because you're constantly going like, okay, I'm, every hour is, you know, X number of dollars that I'm spending. So I guess that's one good thing that has kind of come from COVID is we've learned to work more remotely as musicians, which is a blessing and a curse because you don't really get that same camaraderie as you do with, you know, a whole band of musicians getting together in the studio in the same space to work on something. But what it does give you is time. So you have the luxury to make mistakes and go back over and do it again, which also kind of means that you you might feel a little bit more free to try things because you have the time. And if it works awesome, you get something really cool. And if it doesn't, that's cool, too. So this last record, I, I would say, we spent a lot more time and it was actually just me and a producer. We, we did everything. We, you know, um, played or programmed all the instruments we mixed, we mastered. Um, So it actually took us a longer amount of time because there was just two of us doing it.
0: So somewhere there's some poor studio musicians who are hoping COVID ends quick.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, a lot of them have kind of moved on to doing stuff online, like there are studio musicians or websites where you can hire studio musicians, but then they have to have their own studio set up and and things like that. So it is challenging and it's really challenging for studio owners because they don't have the same number of clients coming through the doors to... Like building a recording studio is really expensive, so you have to- off- offset that cost somehow, but so many people are figuring out ways to record at home that it's it's tough. It's a really tough time for everybody I think involved in the music industry and any aspect of it.
0: right. It is very difficult for a lot of people having to totally uh reevaluate how they do things to have to redesign things uh this whole new new word of disruption. As it applies to uh, transportation, film, television, music, ra- even publishing, so many different aspects, people are having to change. I have a very good friend uh, in Tennessee or Kentucky, and she has a podcast uh, editing studio. I think it's called Bourbon and Barrel. And her and her husband had started outfitting a several new places for podcasters to come and record their shows from that area. And it's like that COVID came along, and it's like, ah. Yeah. So it is really it is really difficult. Um, So you this last album was more about uh, recording yourself and working on the programming music from a from a synthesizer or some sort of a computer program.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is it was really cool. I learned a lot, but it was it was a big learning curve for sure.
0: I'm still trying to make my my transition from Mac to Windows, so i I hope that I I hope that I kind of have an idea of how big that learning curve was for you, but I don't think so.
1: Oh, you're going um, back to Windows? Okay.
0: Yeah, I'm not not out of choice, but yes, I'm going back.
1: Oh, after 15, gotcha.
0: After 15 years, I'm going back. So wow. Yeah, I feel really stupid half the time.
1: Yeah, that's going to be a big learning curve. Like, I can't imagine. I don't remember the last time I used a Windows computer. It's probably been 10 years.
0: Well, considering that, you know, most of the people who work on music or sound editing, they generally are Mac users. So
1: Yeah, a lot of them um, are, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so I'm sitting here. I'm talking with Heather Hutchison. She is an Amazon... Best-selling author of Holding On by Letting Go. She has published or released four albums so far, or will, will be by the end of the week, which uh, I'm disappointed I can't be the first person to tell the world about your new album. But, you know, in a few weeks, it will be out there. Uh, so the new album is called If I Could. So let's uh let's now, and y'all can find her at heatherhutchison.com. That's heather hutchison. And now, before we agreed to record this podcast, uh, me and Heather talked back and forth about uh, me possibly singing one of her songs, but uh, my schedule didn't allow for that to happen, and we actually talked about maybe us singing one of her songs together. That didn't happen. Well, she has graciously agreed to give y'all a few lines of one of the new songs off, or at least I hope it's one of the new songs. It is.
1: I've already said
0: it, I can't take it back. I hope it's one of the new songs off of If I Could. Um,
1: yes, yes. I think we'll we'll go with why don't we do uh If I Could, the the title track. There you go. And All if right. I could remember the lyrics, that would be awesome.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel bad now.
1: <laughs> no, I, it's like I told you, like with the whole like reverse engineering, like, oh, now I have to like learn these songs live because I've only played them in the studio. But we'll, we'll give it a go. We'll do a couple. Of All
0: right. Now I feel better because I'm giving you kind of a little bit of a small, tiny test run.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Picking up speed, but couldn't see the crash come. Caught up in selfish altruism. Addicted to that familiar despair. Still breathing, but no longer there. And if I could say one thing for sure, you were never as alone as you thought you were.
0: (laughs) I love it. I really appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Yes, I I have friends who... Uh, who are performers, people I'm, you know, um, that I know much better than you since we just met last week, but um, who they are always impressed when they hear me sing a on a podcast just because they're like, Max, how do you do that? A is scary. And yeah, I yeah, it's, those- <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's exposed. <laughs>
0: Well, you sounded really good, and but they'll they'll usually t- I will usually say, but you know, you sing in front of three or four or five or ten thousand people, isn't that scary? And they'll go, no, it's different. It's not scary. It's just that one is totally different and more and more uncomfortable than than the other.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't practice it, then then it is really awkward. Or even you know, when people do the national anthem, and some people get super scared. Because usually that's acapella.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't want to do the national anthem. Um, I wouldn't mind doing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" if I could get the people at Wrigley to let me do it there.
1: Oh, that'd be uh, fun! Yeah.
0: Yeah, that'd be fun. That's that's one of those songs you really can't screw up. Just like here in Houston, they do uh, "Deep in the Heart of Texas." That'd be another one because you really can't screw that up too hard, too easily, too you know, too much. No. Um, no. You know, so. Um, now I have no interest in the national anthem or O Canada. I know my range and I stay there. So yeah, uh, yeah, the U.S.
1: national anthem, like it's it's quite the uh, you need quite the range for that one.
0: What would you consider your range? Just just out of curiosity, because because you know you talked about before we started about how we often don't think as much of ourselves as other people do. So I am just curious where do you think your voice fits as far as range.
1: Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, it depends how much I've been practicing, honestly, but I don't know, maybe, (laughs) maybe three octaves.
0: Well, I mean, would you call yourself an alto, uh, a soprano, a mezzo-soprano, a contralto? Where would you figure you fit?
1: Uh, probably, probably soprano. Okay. That's usually what I sing in choirs.
0: Okay. When when people ask me, I usually tell them, "Well, I have more, I have more passion than talent." That's all I usually tell them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's fair. I I would probably say the same thing. Well, because nobody wants to be like, "Yeah, I'm talented." Um.
0: Okay. I'm working on that one because I have people who have encouraged me to do that virtual mirror exercise because I obviously can't look into a mirror
1: mm-hmm. um
0: but so uh let's let's talk a little bit about your life and your book because they are kind of uh kind of tied together there so you were born blind and you uh started having to deal with issues of mental illness at an early age so um would you talk about the early years a little bit
1: yeah so I would say that the really early years were super normal you know you kind of grow up for the first couple of years in this bubble of your own friends and your own family and you don't really pay too much attention to the outside world or what the outside world really thinks about you and When I got to elementary school, I started noticing that people would treat me like I was different. And before that, I never really considered that I was different. And I noticed from a pretty early age that some people were uncomfortable around me, students and adults alike. And I really struggled with that because I wanted to make everybody else comfortable so that I could be comfortable too. So I would like go through books, like children's books, looking, studying all the body language and trying to to emulate it so that people wouldn't know that I was blind and, and that never worked. So it was always like this, I was always failing because I was never, I never looked sighted enough. And there were, you know, some other challenges at home at the time. Um, my dad had cancer. He was diagnosed when I was three and then he left uh, for the first time, when I was six. So there was a lot of anxiety around people leaving and and losing people. And probably by grade two, I was struggling with pretty severe anxiety, I would get sent home from school a lot, um, because I would be sick all the time. And I hope that it's changing with our kids today. But back when I was growing up, the pediatrician kind of just said, well, she's an anxious kid, she'll grow out of it which unfortunately, that's not really how it works a lot of the time. And if you don't get treatment earlier, early, it's just it gets harder and harder to treat like a lot of different illnesses. So by my early teens, I was struggling with depression as well. I think a large part of it was brought on by the anxiety because who wants to feel like that all the time? You You want to find a way out. So you're not feeling like that all the time. And it just kind of Went from there on and off, uh, major depressive episodes over junior high, high school, uh, university, and, and into my young adult life until finally I was hospitalized back at the, at the beginning of the pandemic.
0: And was there something specific about the pandemic that caused the anxiety to the point that that was the, was the place where you ended up being hospitalized?
1: I think I had been struggling for quite a while in a major depressive episode before COVID hit, and they were able to keep me out of the hospital at that time, but I was, they were um, adjusting my medications, I was getting a lot of outpatient mental health support at the time, and then COVID hit. And I wasn't far enough into recovery to really handle it on my own because all of a sudden the doctors and therapists weren't seeing people in person. They were only having phone appointments and they were harder and harder to reach. So because everybody, nobody knew what was going on, like the world was just in disarray. So I didn't have like a lot of people back when the pandemic started, we didn't have the healthcare that, that we needed. So I think a lot of people, whether it was mental illness or physical illness, whatever it was, the illnesses kind of ran unchecked because they weren't getting the support they needed. And, you know, things just got worse and worse, um, because they were being left untreated. And was there a
0: specific thing that, uh that finally caused you to have to be hospitalized
1: so over the years I kind of I would have these what I would call survival goals so if I was really depressed I would tell myself okay you can't kill yourself until you go to Mexico one last time or you can't kill yourself until you see this friend one last time things like that and I would make dates for those things and then count down to when they would happen and then as soon as they were over I would have to plan something immediately after so I could you know convince myself to keep going a little bit longer but then when the pandemic came it was you know all bets were off nobody knew when or if any of that stuff was going to happen again and I just kind of thought well what's the point of of being here without attainable goals and the only thing that I really could control was how and when I was going to die. So I, I made plans to do that. And that's how I ended up in the hospital.
0: You know, that's interesting because, uh, my oncologist and I'm, I'm, I'm relatively healthy. Nobody has to worry about max at this, at this point, or, you know, for a long time in the future, but, uh, when I tell when I used to tell him that I was going to thinking about going on a trip somewhere uh, and we would joke about how my family really didn't want me to go because they just really never want me to go. He would always say, you know, healthy people have stuff to look forward to.
1: hmm. Yeah.
0: So uh, it's it's uh, so COVID basically took away those those tangible concrete things that you had that you could put on your calendar and keep you going
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah so once you were hospitalized is that uh, still part of your self-care or have y'all figured out some other ways for you to avoid these these feelings that that cause you to possibly want to harm yourself
1: no so the hospital was actually really great I know a lot of people kind of roll their eyes when I say you know being hospitalized being in a psychiatric ward was really great because you know people see what they see in the movies and things and they think that's what it's like all the time, which you know you do see some hard things and you hear some hard things, but it's not you know drama twenty four seven but it was a super positive thing for me because when you're in the hospital, you're basically getting therapy you're getting little sessions you know, from the time you wake up in the morning until the time you go to bed. So you meet with your psychiatrist usually once a day on rounds. And then the psychiatric nurses um, also work as counselors and they do these little mini therapy sessions with you throughout the day. So it's not as overwhelming as having like one big one. And then you have groups and and music and things like that um, throughout the day as well. And that was a really positive thing for me because I was getting you know, this feedback all the time to form healthier habits and, and better ways of thinking and getting these really crucial reminders all the time. And then when I left the hospital, you know, the truth is it, it does get harder the longer that you've been out because the voices from the, of the nurses and things like that kind of fade away. And I remember having a conversation with one of the nurses and she said, yeah, you know, they always say the hardest part of being hospitalized and being on this journey is actually when you go home because that's when the real work starts so it it's just um been a thing for me like constantly trying to to remember um you know the things that they taught me in the hospital um self-care is a thing it's a choice that you have to make every day it's not something that one day you just wake up and you're, you're awesome at it. So you kind of have to give yourself a little bit of grace to, to make mistakes and to, to get better at it because, you know, any sort of grounding exercises or meditation, things like that, that, that all takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, i still see therapists on an outpatient basis. I have, um, group therapy that I go to group programs where they talk about, you know, different exercises and and things that we can do to make sure that we stay on a, on a good health, on a good path um, with our mental health. And just so I'm keeping getting those reminders, you know, even though I'm not in the hospital anymore.
0: Right. So kind of like how, during certain times of the year, an athlete that's part of a sports team will be totally immersed in, uh, in trainers, nutritionists, yeah, and physical therapists, et cetera. So the, just the constant presence of trained professionals in the hospital was really mm-hmm. good for you.
1: Yeah, it's like a mental health boot camp. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they would like you calling it that, but that <laughs> Probably does kinda not. sound like one. That's no, kinda...
1: It's a. It's not quite a vacation. Can't really call it that. It's. I suppose somewhere between the two. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So you know, mental health and and the pandemic is is something that's you know really been a problem. It's it seems to be an even bigger problem in the U.S. because our uh, our healthcare system just has hasn't been prepared or built to deal with. A, large numbers of people suffering with mental illness since the seventies.
1: No, neither has ours. It's really tough. And I I hope it's one of the things that will be brought to light in the pandemic is, you know, there and in Canada, we were not set up for this. We need to do better.
0: Right. And uh, do you, have you noticed from your, from your experience are people with a disability or people who have, who live with vision loss any more or less likely to do, have to deal with mental illness?
1: That's a tough question because I don't actually have contact with that many other blind people. I would say, I don't know, maybe it depends if that person is very isolated, maybe because I think... I think those factors you know, of isolation and things like that, whether you have a disability or you don't, you're isolated for some other reason, that is a huge contributor. I know for me, I was always a little bit apprehensive to reach out for help because I worried that any mental health professional would just be like, well, you're blind. Of course, you're depressed, which, you know, there's so many other factors that go into it. So I, I was worried a little bit that I would be dismissed because of my disability when it's It's a lot more complicated than just, I'm blind, so I'm depressed.
0: Well, I would just think that maybe some of the mental health professionals should speak on that particular aspect or write papers on it or something, because as little as we talk about mental health in in general, you know, the people that talk about mental health as it applies to people with disabilities is an even, even smaller amount of airtime.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Like people have read my book and kind of said, wow, I've never seen mental health and disability come together like that in, in one sort of story or book or whatever. And that's crazy to me. How, how are we not talking about this?
0: Because it's easier not to. <laughs>
1: Very true. Very true.
0: Um, I have a good friend or several friends who are either deaf of hard of hearing or hard of hearing, and they, they tell me that they wish more people would talk about how uh, mental illness has affected the hearing impairment community, because especially for those who have to depend on, well, they, they either depend on lip reading or sign language, but you have to be so focused in on your communication method. And you have uh, such a limited amount of in, of input outside of, uh, of those things to where they feel isolated emotionally if not isolated physically
1: yeah absolutely and again it goes back to that isolation which probably has become even more challenging with covid because you go to a store and the cashier is wearing a mask now what do you do (laughs)
0: well even beyond that i mean the poor guide dogs that had to learn how to figure out which way to go in the store aisles back when they were one way
1: yeah guide dogs Um, aren't trained to social distance
0: (laughs) It or not. no no but there's an article in usa i think about a woman who's who has a guide dog who says she helps social distancing stays for good because it because now that they've figured out how to work with the guide dogs and social distancing it's made her life easier um
1: that's true that's but, true i can see that
0: yeah you know so um but you know you, you mentioned isolation and, and in general i mean i i i, I, I could, eventually be proven wrong on this and somebody may go back to you, you know, you need to get out more. But it feels to me like, in general, people with disabilities are more likely to be physically isolated, emotionally isolated or both, as opposed to the general population.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that.
0: Yes, you know, Uh, so, and some of that is logistics, some of that is mindset, some of that is economy.
1: Yeah, I think uh, when you're physically isolated, then you're kind of socially and emotionally isolated often at the same time. Because like we were talking about earlier with Zoom, you're not getting that same kind of connection and feedback that you would be otherwise.
0: Right. But, you know, on the positive side of this COVID thing, I've talked to a lot of people with disabilities who are like, you know, as far as the isolation and the distancing and not being able to communicate with people, that part of their lives really hasn't changed much.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Yeah.
0: Because, you know, before COVID, they had different reasons for their isolation.
1: Okay. Yeah, that I can yeah. see that, you know, if, if public transport's an issue or if they don't have people around who can drive them, if public transport is an issue or things like that, it it could be challenging for sure. Even before COVID, I know I lived in a small town for like five or six years and it, it really took a toll on me because I lost all of my independence. I was constantly having to ask people if I wanted anything, if I wanted to go anywhere because there were no buses. And I think that really, it, it, my morale took a huge hit with that. So I'm glad to be in a bigger place now.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, it is difficult when you live in the country or the suburbs yeah. or you know, some of the more wild places in the U S and Canada or, uh, or sadly, you know when I talk to some people from from Asia and from Latin America, they'll tell me that um a large percentage of the of the visually impaired population are still basically being kept at home or or put in institutions and being cared for as opposed to them being expected to do anything.
1: Yeah, I have lived in Latin America and I can I can say that's definitely what you do see or sometimes you will see them on the streets begging or or they come onto the buses with their canes and and a cup or whatever um to ask for money because they don't really have any options in terms of jobs or education.
0: Yeah, and just one last thing I wanted to ask about before we finish because it it just impressed me. I was like, "That's got to be that's got to be really difficult." So, uh, how did you manage to teach English in Latin America as a as a blind woman? That you know, not just the logistics, but just the social uh, uh, outlook of people in Latin America towards people who are blind. I mean, just how did tell us a little bit about that experience?
1: You know, it's funny because. We think in North America and Canada and the U.S., we're so much more educated and we we treat people so much better. And as much as people with disabilities, I did see them struggle for sure in Latin America. Um, there's also honestly a better attitude, I would say, towards people with disabilities, people generally were much more accepting of me in Latin America than they are here. They asked fewer questions, but they observed more and they were just, I don't know, I think maybe they're just more used to adversity. Whereas here, everything makes us uncomfortable. So, you know, we see something (laughs) that we don't understand and ooh, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't know what to do about that. So I'm just going to be super awkward about it. Whereas I would say there, they're just, they're not awkward you know they ask do you need help um but not like they don't make a big deal out of it I would say like they often seem to do in Canada or the U.S. so I would say like physically logistically it was more challenging because the buses and taxis and traffic and and even safety that sort of thing there is definitely more difficult but socially I would say it was actually easier
0: and as far as your time in the classroom, how did that go?
1: It was fine. Yeah, people, I kind of figured out, I was teaching English a year um, in Canada as well before I left, and kind of figured out what worked, what didn't work. I had a lot of private students in that year, so they, they were kind of my my guinea pigs. They were very kind, and we figured out systems that, that would work, and um, I would have you know my worksheets and stuff on my computer that I could, I could send to them, or I could mark their work. They would send uh, documents back to me by email usually, and then I could uh, mark them that way. So it actually, you know, with a little bit of ingenuity and creativity, we we did make it work. And I have to really thank my students there because they they were, by and large, very very accommodating and very. Very kind um, and willing to work with me on those things.
0: What age group were you teaching?
1: I was teaching adults. So, a lot of uh, people who wanted to learn English for business or in Canada, people who were new here and wanted to be able to make friends or people who wanted um, to go to school in an English speaking country, people like that.
0: Okay. So, uh, much different than if you had been teaching. Uh, elementary, junior high, or or the equivalent of high school English. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think elementary, in particular, would have been really difficult. I I had a couple of students in elementary school when I was li- living in in Latin America, and they were certainly the most challenging.
0: Yeah, um, Eric Weigheimer, the 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 blind adventurer that climbed Everest and does oh, yeah. a bunch of other crazy stuff. He's he's got some great. He had some great stories about his, uh, short experiences teaching, I think it was, uh, like fifth, sixth, seventh grade math in Arizona. Oh, that'd Uh, be
1: hard. (laughs) That would be really hard. There's
0: some really, there's some really cute, funny stories in that book. I think it's in his, I think it's in his adversity advantage book, but I mean, it was just, I was like, man, that was some really, really cool, honest stuff, which is, uh, so, but, uh, now your your book, um, you say that you've already been hearing from people who, uh, by reading your story, it has helped them uh, deal with their own issues around mental illness. And so I assume that means accepting as well as treatment.
1: Yeah, I think so. People have been people have been really supportive, and I was nervous. There were a lot of sleepless nights because I just didn't know how people were going to take it because. I was brutally honest. I felt like if I was going to go out on a limb and tell my story, I had to really tell it how it actually happened with, you know, that brutal honesty. Um, but I think that actually worked out um, probably better because the the people who, you know, some people are going to be made uncomfortable by it for sure. But the people who it really need needed to reach, I think it reached them better because I know when I was going through it, there was a lot of times I would look at social media and people would be like, oh, I went through this really hard time, but it's all I'm all better now. And that's kind of all they would say about it. And it it just made me feel more isolated because it was like, "Okay, how did they do this? But I can't do this. So I, I wanted to know what people really went through and how they started to to get better. I really wanted to get into you know, exploring that darkness a little bit more, because I think we're talking about mental health and mental illness more now than ever, but I still don't know that we're talking about it necessarily in the right ways, in the ways that don't just isolate people even more.
0: Okay, so do you have some thoughts about how we could better frame the conversation of mental illness so we could actually see more people be helped in the immediate as well as have long-term healing from their mental illness?
1: I think for me and everybody's going to have their own comfort zone, but I, I hope that people get more comfortable sharing their stories and, and sharing them in a real way, not this kind of social media glitter influencer oh cheer up everything will be better tomorrow kind of way because i don't think that helps people but i think if we are honest if we really if we're willing to share our own darkness then i think we can help guide people through theirs
0: that's a wonderful beautiful expression and i agree with you and i really wish more people who are bloggers and podcasters and authors would be willing to be as open with their audiences as uh, as their audiences really deserve them to be because you know if if we aren't willing to share the struggles and the setbacks and the the anxieties then what what do the successes and the celebrations really mean
1: yeah exactly that's that's what i've said so many times like people are like oh i'm you know so successful and happy now Okay, great. What did it take you to get there? <laughs>
0: uh, I am known for uh, people. People have often asked me a question. How do I feel about being considered an inspiration or inspiring? Mm-hmm. And that's a question as a blind person, many of us get.
1: Yeah, and I, definitely.
0: Often tell, I'll, I often tell them, I don't mind you calling me an inspiration, but I want to know something that I, uh, that, I want to know something concrete that I inspired you to do.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Not like, oh, you're an inspiration because you walked down the stairs today. I've literally had people <laughs> say that to me and I'm like, please, yeah, like, I was... if that's the best I can do, I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but it kind of felt like what you were saying as far as, um, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're healed, how did you get healed? You know, it's kind of like the reverse, the inverse, actually, you know, so we need more people to be more honest about the journey and the process, which in my case, I've actually turned down a few guests lately because I'm like, my audience, they want to, they want to see happy, successful people, but they want to know how you got there so they can figure out how to, how they can get there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're not willing to share your own journey, then, then are you just, really making yourself feel better by telling people how amazing you're doing now because because you're not willing to share with them how you got there
0: hey maybe that's why they're happy they they, uh, (laughs)
1: they're
0: willing to they're willing to tell themselves they're that they're that they're successful and they're awesome enough and and they believe it i guess Um, yeah i
1: mean uh, whatever works but
0: yeah yeah. Unfortunately, those types of things don't work for long. They will usually no. fail at some point. So, uh, before we, before we wrap up, is there, is there one or, or a couple of things that you've learned during your process that you think might help somebody who's listening now?
1: For sure. So like we were just talking about, I'm not gonna, you know, sit here and pretend I have all the answers cause I don't, or tell people, oh, cheer up tomorrow's a another day, everything will be fine. You know, I'll leave that for the social media influencers. But <laughs> what I can tell you is there will come a day when you'll stop in a moment and you'll feel such profound joy in that moment. And you'll think to yourself, I, I would have missed this or I could have missed this and hang on for that moment because I promise you it is
0: worth it. That's good. That is really strong and it's kind of yeah. like a more progressive version of your old calendar idea where you had physical, tangible things to look forward to. Now you're looking forward to those moments of joy.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, which is, I would say, a lot uh, healthier way of, of looking at life and, and the
0: future. Well, I really appreciate you coming on my show and I look forward to your continued success as an author and a musician, a singer, and also um, at some point, somebody's going to turn the book and the album into a Broadway play. And just be <laughs> sure you be, just be sure you hook me up with some tickets because you know them them tickets on opening night they are expensive.
1: Totally, totally VIP access for sure. <laughs>
0: there you go. I'm I'm throwing that out there for my friend Adriana Gavazzoni from from Brazil, who's like, Max, she keeps telling me, Max, one of these days I'm going to be walking the red carpet and you're going to be my plus one. So,
1: well, there you go. You got something to look forward to. (laughs) That's exciting.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, who knows? Hollywood still hasn't called for her book, but maybe Broadway will call for yours
1: soon. (laughs) Fingers crossed.
0: Fingers crossed. All right. Well, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I
0: really do appreciate it, Heather.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Okay, so we had another great conversation today, and I loved how honestly Heather shared about her life, uh, how growing up, some of her issues had to do with Uh, trying to make other people comfortable so she wouldn't be uncomfortable. That's really interesting uh, thought about her experiences as a young person who was blind. Um, I love how she has managed to accomplish things like writing her book and recording the albums, but that she is really a big believer in sharing honestly with y'all as am I. I agree with her that one of the best things we can do to help others is to share our difficult times, the struggles, the setbacks, the disasters, the failures that happen along the way so that people don't get the mistaken idea that there's something wrong with them. And so I appreciate her sharing that. And I'm sure her book is amazing, uh, Holding On By Letting Go. And she says it's a really honest take, not only on her mental illness, but her treatment and and her uh, recovery and how she continues to live with it, which is another thing I think we can take is whether it's mental illness, physical health, weight loss, uh, feelings of anxiety, none of these are things that ever go away. We have to continuously face these things on a daily basis. And as I've often said, when people ask me if I continue to get nervous when I publish an article or a book or record myself, and I tell them, yeah, you're always going to get nervous. The nerves, and anxiety never go away. You just have more experience and more techniques for dealing with it. And it was great seeing her. Uh, interesting that she found a producer the first time she sang at a, at a major in-public event, but that. She admitted she's suffered with stage fright and continues to and doesn't think that'll ever go away and really love that she said she doesn't think it would be a good thing if her stage fright ever truly went completely away. So lots of great things that we learned from Heather today. I hope y'all will check out her book, Holding On to Letting Go. By the time y'all see this, her fourth album, If I Could, will have been released So I hope y'all check out some of the tracks on the usual places like Apple and Spotify and Audible and those places where you can uh, listen to or buy people's music and support my wonderful guest, Heather. And as I often say, if Heather can do it, then what's your excuse? I do appreciate y'all listening and continuing to support the podcast because without you, I couldn't continue to do this. I want to, once again, thank our sponsors, Blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com, for their financial and technical support of the show and the network. I want to thank uh, my good friend, Emily Trepanier, who is off this week uh, snowboarding down the hills of Western Canada, preparing to race later this year, supporting my good friend Emily as she continues to chase after Paralympic gold medal in downhill snowboarding, so Be thinking some good thoughts for Emily. And uh, until next time, thank you and take care now. Bye. Too many times we stand aside And let the water slip away To what we put off to tomorrow Has finally come today So don't stand upon the shoreline and say you're satisfied. Choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the